You're listening to Bible Prophecy Daily, a weekday podcast where Bible prophecy matters and matters greatly. Greetings, fellow believers in our Lord Jesus Christ. In this episode, I will look at what the Bible calls the blasphemy against the Holy Spirit, or what's often called the unpardonable sin. But first, let's look at the condition of the human race in the eyes of God. This should provide a really great review for every believer. And if by any chance someone is listening who has not trusted in Christ as Savior, Hearing the following could make a difference in where you will spend eternity. Romans 3.23 teaches that all have sinned and come short of God's glory. That is, they've come short of the righteousness of God. At Romans 5.6-10, there are four words that describe that condition. Um, it could be represented by the acrostic H-U-S-E. The first word is helpless. Man is indeed helpless to do anything to solve the, the, the sin problem. Uh, Psalm 49, 7 says, No one can by any means redeem another or give God a ransom for him. The second word is ungodly. This word describes the basic nature of all people. It's the nature that is opposite to and resistant to the righteousness of God. Romans 3.10 says, there is none righteous, no, not one. The third word is sinners. This describes the fact that people consistently follow their own unrighteous character and act contrary to God's moral laws. Romans 3.12 says, there is no one who does good, no, not one. And the fourth word is enemies. This describes the natural antagonism between God and every person. There is actually an ongoing warfare between the human race and the kingdom of God. Paul describes it at Colossians 121. You were previously alienated and hostile in attitude, engaged in evil deeds. Paul describes man's sinful condition at Ephesians 2.1 as being dead in trespasses and sins. Now, death refers to spiritual death, which is basically separated from God and empty, uh, deficient of his quality of life. And because of this, God's judicious wrath must fall upon all who are guilty. Romans 2.5 tells us, But because of your stubbornness and unrepentant heart, you are storing up wrath for yourself on the day of wrath and revelation of the righteous judgment of God. But in spite of this universal sinfulness of the human race, in God's grace, he has provided the answer. The entire passage at Romans 5, 6 through 10, and focus on the four words that I just mentioned. For while we were still helpless, 
at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. Indeed, God demonstrates his own love toward us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Much more than having now been justified by his blood, we shall be saved from the wrath of God through him. For if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God through the death of his son, much more, having been reconciled, we shall be saved by his life. Jesus died for the sins of the whole world. Hebrews 2.9 says that he actually tasted death for everyone. Now, no matter how many or what kinds of sins a person has committed in their life, they were all carried in Christ's body on the cross. 1 Peter 2.24 states it. He himself carried our sins in his body on the cross. Now, while Jesus was on the cross, all the sins of the world were placed upon him. God the Father and God the Spirit looked upon him, and, and spiritually speaking, they turned away from him. And in that moment of time, the Savior of the world experienced separation from God. He experienced spiritual death for the entire human race. And at that very moment, after recognizing his separation from God the Father and from the Holy Spirit, Jesus proclaimed, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He then quickly acknowledged the reason. He said, Because you are holy. And at that very moment that the Father accepted Christ's payment for all the sins of the world, Jesus proclaimed, Tetelestai, paid in full. It is finished. Redemption had now been accomplished. God was satisfied. And John tells us that Jesus is indeed the satisfaction for the sins of the whole world at, at 1 John 2.2. 2. Now, it was a universal payment, according to 1 Timothy 2.6, says who gave himself as a ransom for all. It is a universal provision. Titus 2.11 says, for the grace of God has appeared bringing salvation to all people. 1 Timothy 2.4 tells us that God desires all people to be saved and to come to a knowledge of the truth. Because of that, there is a universal invitation. Probably a good summary of that invitation is found at Revelation 22.17. The spirit and the bride say, come. Let the one who hears say, come. Let the one who is thirsty come. And let the one who desires Take the water of life freely as a gift. So now, what must be done to be saved from the penalty of sin? The simple answer is stated clearly at Acts 16.31. Uh, the Philippian jailer asks, Sirs, what must I do to be saved? The apostles answered him, Believe in the Lord Jesus and you will be saved. Now that is, just trust the fact that Jesus paid for your sins. And the result is, whoever believes in Christ has everlasting life. Yes, indeed, every personal sin was paid for on the cross, both past, present, and future sins. But there is one sin that cannot be forgiven, ever. It is the sin of unbelief. 
the sin of rejecting Jesus as, as your savior. And the only way to stop it is to reverse it. That is, they must change their attitude about Jesus and believe in him as their savior. That's what repent means. It means to change the mind about God and about your belief system and to accept God's system for salvation. Now, this is the major point of conviction as the Holy Spirit uses the gospel message to woo the unbeliever to himself. John 16, 9, Jesus said, the Holy Spirit will convict the world of sin, righteousness, and judgment. He will convict concerning sin in the singular, not sins, one sin. Why? Because they do not believe in me. That's the issue. He will also convict of righteousness to reveal the need for salvation. That need is that all have come short of God's righteousness. And he will convict of judgment. That is to reveal the ultimate consequence of sin, which is uh, eternal separation from God. Now, during his ministry, Jesus continually rebuked the religious leaders and the people that the issue for having a relationship with God, that is the possession of spiritual life and forgiveness of sins, was the one sin of rejecting him as the savior of the world. Let's look at John 8, 21 through 24. Then he said again to them, I'm going away. You'll look for me and you're going to die in your sin. Singular. Where I'm going, you cannot come. And so the Jews were saying among themselves, surely he's not going to kill himself, will he? Since he says, where I'm going, you cannot come. And of course, Jesus, knowing they're mumbling, he uh, said to them, you are from below. I am from above. You are of this world. I am not of this world. Therefore, I said to you that you will die in your sins, plural, for unless you believe that I am, that is that I am the Messiah, you will die in your sins. Now, two factors are in view in this passage. The first one is the sin of unbelief. That's at verse 21. You will die in your sin, singular. The second factor is the many personal sins that fill a person's life and uh, for which Jesus died on the cross. Dying in sin, singular, refers to meeting physical death without having trusted in Christ as Savior. Dying in sins, plural, refers to meeting physical death while still under the weight and experience of personal sins. Now, even though Jesus, uh, these sins were all carried by Jesus and paid for, the experiential effects of those sins remain with the unbeliever throughout his life, and he dies without experiencing the reality and joy of forgiveness. However, at the last judgment, it is the one sin of unbelief that condemns the person to the lake of fire and everlasting separation from God. It's not personal sins. It's not sins in the plural. It's the one sin of unbelief. Revelation 20:15 says, if anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire. That was the issue. Now, the name of every person who was ever born or ever will be born has their name recorded in the book of life. And it's uh, only the sin of unbelief 
that will result in having one's name blotted out of the book of life. Revelation 3, 5 says, he who overcomes will be clothed in white raiment, and I will not blot his name out of the book of life. Now, the definition of the overcomer in this contest uh, context is the one who has trusted in Christ as his savior. Uh, John gives us that definition at, at 1 John 5, 5. Who is the one who overcomes the world? But he who believes that Jesus is the son of God. And so failure to trust in Christ as savior is going to result in your name being blotted out of the book. But of course, since as long as there is life, there is hope. The name of the unbeliever will not be blotted out of the book until the moment of physical death. And the only exception to that is for the one who takes the mark of the beast. For such a one, there's no chance of turning back. Now, at John 8.21, the Greek has harmatia in the singular. And at verse 24, it's in the plural. There are no manuscript variations that have it in plural. There's no transcriptural reason for distinguishing between the singular and the plural. But there is a spiritual reason for making that distinction. And that's why Jesus made a point of using it in the singular in verse 21 and in the plural in verse 24. He used the word sin in the singular to indicate a specific condition, a disposition, or, or even attitude of sin. And in contrast to sins in the plural, which refers to all the many acts of personal sin in all three categories, mental, verbal, and uh, action or overt. It is then the specific condition of unbelief that will perpetuate man's spiritual death into eternity in the lake of fire. The scripture then overall makes a distinction between all the sins of the world that Jesus died for and the one sin that Jesus did not die for. Now, later at John 9, 41, uh, Jesus said to them, if you were blind, you would have no sin. But since you say we see, therefore your sin remains. If you were blind, that is, if you were aware of your need, you would have trusted in Christ. You would have no sin. Sin is in the singular there, refers to the sin of unbelief. The sin of unbelief would be offset by recognizing that you are blind, that you are in need. And by accepting the spiritual healing through faith in Christ, that would be offset, reversed, changed. Now, the overall purpose for Christ's first coming is to provide salvation and to pronounce a judgment upon those who don't accept his provision. In the same passage at John 9, 39, he said, For judgment I came into this world. Now he came to clarify the reality of divine judgment from God's wrath. He actually does not want to judge uh, anyone as he taught previously at John 3, 16 and following, so that they should not perish but have everlasting life. In verse 17, For God did not send the Son into the world to judge the world, but that the world might be saved through him. He came for the purpose of providing spiritual life for mankind through his payment for sins. 
the issue with the religious people confronting Jesus, both the leadership and the uh, citizenry, for lack of a better term, the people, is not the fact that they are religious or are even false teachers, but the fact that they have rejected Jesus as the Messiah. Uh, Jesus clarified this at John 5, 39 and 40. He told them, you search the scriptures because in them you think you have eternal life. And it's these that bear witness of me. And you are unwilling to come to me that you may have life. Now, Jesus taught that his mission was to solve the spiritual blindness factor of the human race. In this uh, ironic proclamation, Jesus refers to those who think they have spiritual sight. That is, they think they are right with God. They are uh, as ones who say, we see. His purpose is to expose their deficiency and bring them to the place of spiritual humility. His purpose is to bring them, bring them the knowledge that they need in order to gain true spiritual sight so that they can believe in him and, and then have everlasting life. In other words, they need to recognize that they are really blind, really deficient of spiritual truth. Even though they say they see, they need to realize they are blind. On the other hand, he refers to those who recognize their spiritual need as those who don't see. Those who are blind, that is, they are ones who don't claim to have truth different from what God's system proclaims. They recognize their need. Jesus mentioned both at uh, verse 39. For judgment I came into this world so that those who do not see may see and that those who see may become blind. Those of the Pharisees who were with him heard these things and they said to him, we are not blind also, are we? And Jesus said to them, if you were blind, you would have no sin. But since you say we see, your sin remains. His statement, if you were blind, refers to spiritual humility and spiritual perception that recognizes Jesus as the Messiah Savior. And, and that would result in saving faith. However, because they insist that they have spiritual sight, they say, we see, and they do not recognize Christ as the Messiah. As shown previously, they are unwilling to come to him that they may have life. It's the sin that, uh, the sin of unbelief that denies them the everlasting life. That sin remains. Jesus taught this again at John 15, 22 through 24. If I had not come and spoken to them, they would not have sin. The sin in the singular, the sin of unbelief. But now they have no excuse for their sin. He who hates me hates my father. If I had not done among them the works which no one else did, they would not have sin, the sin of unbelief. But now they have both seen and hated me and my father as well. Notice that if Jesus had not given them the knowledge that he was the Messiah Savior, they would not have sin. What sin would that be? 
Well, Jesus explained it. He said, now they have no excuse for their sin. They have no excuse for rejecting him as the promised Messiah Savior. They have no excuse for their hatred and their unbelief. Obviously, the sin of rejecting him is the sin of unbelief. It's fed by that hatred because the darkness hates the light. And of course, the only way to reverse that particular sin is to trust in him. Their sin remains because they insist that they have spiritual sight, and yet they reject Jesus as the Messiah. Now, before the arrival of Jesus and his revelation of himself as the promised Messiah Savior, salvation was still accomplished by trust in that promise of a coming Savior. And the sin of unbelief was still the nail in the coffin to confirm one's eternal judgment. It was then, always has been, always will be, faith trust in the promise of the Savior that he was coming and that he has come that procured salvation. And of course, faith must be directed to a specific person of that promise, the Lord Jesus Christ. Again, back to John 8, 24, for unless you believe that I am, you shall die in your sins in the plural. Now, according to Jesus, there is one sin that is unforgivable. It's called blasphemy against the spirit and refers to a rejection of the spirit's witness that Jesus is the Messiah Savior. This sin of rejecting Christ as the Messiah is the sin of unbelief. This sin of, of rejecting the ministry of the Spirit that proclaims Jesus as the Messiah is the sin of unbelief. Now, let's look at Matthew 12, 31 and 32. Jesus is the Messiah, of course, and the Savior of the world. And as the Messiah, he demonstrated messianic authority. His teaching, casting out of the temple, Lord of the Sabbath, various other things. He also demonstrated messianic power through his miracles, casting out demons, healings, and various other miracles. On this occasion, Jesus had demonstrated his messianic power, his messianic authority, by casting out demons. This was, of course, done through the Holy Spirit. And it is this demonstration of messianic authority that proclaimed that the kingdom of God was now among them. Matthew 12, 28 says, but if I cast out demons by the power of the Holy Spirit, then the kingdom of God has come upon you. When the Jews accused him of doing it through the prince of demons, they were rejecting the spirit's ministry upon him. If they don't accept the spirit's ministry in Jesus, they will not accept him as the Messiah. It's the rejection of Jesus as the Messiah and the savior of the world that is the unpardonable sin. And it is a forever sin unless they repent. That is, unless they change their mind about him, which is trust in him as the Messiah Savior. And as I've mentioned before, as long as they are alive, they have the opportunity to do just that. In Matthew 12, 31, <clears throat> Jesus said, Therefore, I say to you, every sin and blasphemy shall be forgiven people. But blasphemy against the spirit shall not be forgiven. Accepting him as savior brings total forgiveness of all sins at that very moment of time. And the penalty of spiritual death is removed 
Acts 10.43 says, through his name, everyone who believes in him receives forgiveness of sins. Ephesians 1.7 says, in whom we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our sins. But if one does not trust in Jesus, there is no forgiveness. To speak against the spirit is to reject the testimony of the spirit that, that, that bears witness to the messiahship of Jesus. This is the sin that can never be forgiven, either in this age or the age to come. Mark 3.28 calls it an eternal sin. That is a sin that is perpetuated for all eternity. The only sin that fits that category is the sin of rejecting Christ. If one rejects Jesus as Savior, there's simply no forgiveness. And the sin of unbelief can only be undone by one thing, reversal. As long as there's life, there's hope, there's opportunity to believe in Christ. Uh, the only exception to that is when someone takes the mark of the beast uh, during the time of his oppressive reign on the earth uh, called the tribulation. Uh, Revelation 14, 9 through 11. Now, something else here. Notice also at, at uh, verse 32 of Matthew 12, Jesus said, you can say anything against the Son of Man, that's him, and I won't hold it against you. Now, this refers to the personal forgiveness that Jesus gives to those who sin against him. It, it has nothing to do with salvation. It's the same kind of personal forgiveness that we should express toward others. Matthew 18, 21 and 22, Jesus taught uh, when Peter came up and said to him, Lord, how many times shall my brother sin against me and I, I still forgive him up to seven times? And Jesus said to him, I, I don't say to you up to seven times, but up to 77 times. This is exactly what happened on the cross when Jesus said, Father, forgive them. That is those who were crucifying him. Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. It's at Luke 23, 24, uh, pardon me, 34. Now, this expresses the attitude of Jesus toward his personal enemies. It does not bring any kind of salvation forgiveness. But Jesus also makes the point that if they reject who he is, then they are rejecting their only source of salvation. Now. Although the Holy Spirit has a continuous activity of convicting the world of sin, righteousness, and judgment, people today cannot actually reject the Spirit's function of working in the life of Jesus. That could only be done while in the presence of Jesus and as a witness to his messianic miracles. Uh, so that specific blasphemy against the Spirit was limited to when Jesus was present on earth. However, the failure of the world to trust in Christ today pretty much amounts to the same thing. That is, rejection of the convicting ministry of the Holy Spirit, that's his ministry today, basically bearing witness of Jesus through the gospel message. Technically, it's the same thing. Uh, and, and it carries the same results. Rejection of Jesus as your Savior means no forgiveness of sins. And that results in the perpetuation of spiritual death in the lake of fire for all eternity. Now, for us, those of us who have trusted in Christ as Savior, our possession of everlasting life is secure. Just as Paul wrote 
at Romans 8, 38 and 39. For I am convinced that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor any other created thing will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Thanks for listening to Bible Prophecy Daily. We hope you learned something valuable today. Be sure to subscribe wherever you heard this podcast so you never miss an episode. 